The subject for this evening's talk is investigation into feelings. Sometimes when we are uh, exposed to the tradition, particularly the, the Buddhist tradition, we might, we might say that we observe different uh, threads and themes which appear to be a, a common kind of emphasis running through over the last uh, uh, two and a half a thousand years. And also one observes as well that there are uh, differences too. And perhaps within the diversity of the spiritual teachings of uh, similarity and differences, we find out through our own uh, investigation and our own experience what feels useful and appropriate for us, where the limitations are, and of course, hopefully, hopefully not um, defining or confining ourselves to uh, simply one uh, long, long-standing uh, tradition. And sometimes when we look, we see, as an example, in one of the Buddhist traditions, the uh, Theravada tradition, it has said, and has said quite consistently, that there is the value and the usefulness of the application of the Eightfold Path. And it says a, a thoughtful and caring human being will give immense amount of consideration in her or his life to the cultivation and the development of each of these links of the Eightfold Path. Uh, right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right uh, livelihood, right awareness, mindfulness, right meditation and so forth. And this helps to bring a human being into the fullness of life and also into the fullness of understanding. And sometimes one takes uh, another uh, tradition and, and there the view is taken in a very long-term way and towards the fulfillment of the human being as expressed in uh, Buddhahood with the awakening and the uh, insights and sometimes viewed in some of the Mahayana traditions on a very long-term basis in terms of lifetimes upon lifetimes. Sometimes one sees too within the Zen tradition that there is less emphasis on the future and time but more an endorsement and a very direct and immediate encouragement to be, of course, present, to apply um, a great deal of diligence and perhaps uh, effort also to the present, and in that, that can be a catalyst through effort, through uh, the work and diligence, sometimes um, Cohen and other forms, to have some form of uh, intensity of experience in the present. And, of course, within all of that, there are a whole variety of uh, subtleties and I could be usefully uh, accused here of gross simplification. And within, within all of that, we <coughs> might say that it all reflects and expresses in different ways, different threads of what we are told was said two and a half thousand years ago and what has been handed on over the, over the centuries. In that, I think the, the important and, and valuable factor in all of that is the significance 
and the possibility of a realized heart, of an awakened heart, and the ways that that is possible for us and possible for us in the immediacy of things. And I think one of the things which is quite necessary in that is with the awakening of heartfulness and supporting factors, investigation into a feeling life, is the sense for oneself of possibility that the essence of the teachings, the very heart of the teachings, the, the, the deepest feelings of the teachings, are immediately available to us. Not because of any person present, of any atmosphere, or even any retreat, or anything like that, but an availability, an accessibility in the immediacy of things. And I think sometimes the way we think about ourselves tends to easily undermine that viewpoint. And we often can produce and generate inside of ourselves a whole range of thoughts of never being ready, not being ready, that I've got so much work to do on myself, I've got so much more effort, I've got to try harder, I've got to bring in time, I've got to bring in the future, and then maybe, before time runs out or I run out, then possibly I'll be ready. And I think this view and this r the reaction to this view tends to emerge very easily in a time in the present of difficulty. One looks at some painful situation, one's feelings appear to be running amok over some uh, situation, past, present or future. And in that time, in that difficulty of emotion, difficulty of circumstance, the thought then arises, you know, how can I ever realize anything like this? How can I ever come to any insight? How can I ever taste of liberation? How, how can I ever be in, enlightened or whatever? And then this thought says, God, I've got so long to go. God, I hardly feel that I've, I've begun this process and I'm still like this and I'm now on my 73rd retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and this view, this idea, takes, it, it starts to resonate inside, and what then happens very easily, it gets, it gets consolidated. It becomes the position which one adopts about oneself. And, unf and unfortunately, with positions about ourselves which we have adopted, it's subject to recycling. It's subject to reappearing again. So very easily, when there's <coughs> a difficulty in our life, whether here or elsewhere, lightning quick, and so quick, the Buddha said, that he couldn't think of a simile so fast as to describe the arising of a viewpoint, that so quick is the view to arise about oneself that it becomes the view about oneself. And so sometimes in our disappointments, in our difficulties, in the immediacy of, immediacy of things, this, as it were, postponement in a way we of the possibility of realizing, the possibility of understanding, of freedom, however, whatever language we wish to use, becomes our reality. 
And wonderful thing about all of that is, as people can show and reveal through their experience, in a way, no matter what we think about ourselves, and what kind of view we have in, in spiritual terms about ourselves, the heart's awakening can ignore all that anyway. One can go on thinking, oh, I'm never ready, I've never had a deep sitting in my life, I don't know what meditation really is, though I sit here in this um, ferocious posture. And <laughs> the mind and one's view can keep reinforcing and establishing this, but deeper down doesn't take a scrap of notice anyway. So why not forget the idea and the notion of sometime in the future I might be ready? And just let, 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 let go of that. And even though that sometimes goes against the traditional viewpoint, one might also be uh, willing and able, which sometimes is a little bit more ch challenging when looking at the way that we relate and the feelings which support this, is the view that if something is g meaningful is going to happen, it's actually going to require my effort to make it happen. This is a socially conditioned standpoint. If something is worthwhile is going to happen in my life and be genuinely significant for me in my life, then I really have got to put in my effort, my will, my striving. I've really got to work very, very hard because that's the only way something useful and abundant in the genuine spiritual sense of abundance can possibly take place. Where does this idea come from? Who on earth started this virus? <laughs> <laughs> and somehow it's got passed on for the last two and a half thousand years and we are the unfortunate recipients. And I say, do we have to believe and identify with long-term view one is never ready and couldn't be ready, or with the view that it could happen now, but it will only happen through a lot of efforting and striving and pushing on my part. Could this consolidation of these views actually be abandoned? And I think that abandonment, in a way, is not so much to adopt another position and take up another viewpoint and get saddled with that. But the abandoned is more a kind of state of innocence. I don't know where I am at. I don't know whether I am prepared or not. I don't know if events of life could touch right now and be liberating. I don't know if the essence of these spiritual teachings are immediately available. But one thing I do know is I can't rely on what my mind says because my mind is a reaction to the circumstances. I cannot rely on it. It's not a dependable formation for what we're talking about.
Sometimes we... We hear, we hear a great deal, of course, about letting go of the past, letting go of memory, letting go of the, of the, of the old, letting go of what has been. And sometimes I think we tend to rather narrowly view this letting go exclusively in personal terms. And we say, well, uh, I'm doing my practice, I'm engaging my practice. Those old experiences, those old feelings in my life, those old memories or whatever, all, all of that can and needs to be let go of. And, as it says in the text and that the Buddha has said, he, he, he said, don't be concerned. He says, don't even ask oneself what I was in the past how I was in the past, what I did in the past, where I was in the past, who I was in the past. He says, don't be concerned about it. So there's this incredible encouragement to, as it were, be lightly with the present, not carry the old baggage in the present, and to be rather diligent in travelling lightly with the here and now, lightly into the here and now. And sometimes one does feel a sense of lightness, and sometimes the pressures and tensions, as some of you describe, it just, as it were, in the body itself. And those kind of stored feelings do and can really begin to drop away. Sometimes memory is, is an extraordinary thing, that even things which we think we really know well, sometimes, temporarily, as people report, sometimes they drop away too. To give a small uh, example of, of this personal example, when I was um, in the m in the monkhood, which is uh, some uh, time ago, some lifetimes ago, really, I, as as is uh, common in the in the tradition, one changes one's uh, name, and the upajaya, the ordinator, as one enters into the monkhood, is given a given a new uh, name, and so my name was. Uh, Guarded, and I took upon this uh, new name, which uh, is uh, in the Pali, Kitty Supo, Kitty Supo. I'm rather reluctant to tell you what it means because it's slightly em embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kitty uh, means uh, reputation, and Supo means uh, beautiful. So you can imagine why I don't want to repeat that too often. <laughs> and. So there I am, giving my new name, Beautiful Reputation, by somebody who never met me before. <laughs> and, in, and after I had been in the monastery for some time and engaged in um, uh, practice and uh, there, a visitor came, uh, a Western visitor, this is in the, in the monastery in southern Thailand. And uh, being the only Westerner there, he was, had heard that I was there. And asked the abbot, uh, Ajahn Damodaro, my uh, Vipassana teacher, if he could uh, meet me, so I uh, met with him. And in the beginning of this conversation, he um, asked me what my name was, and I said, uh, Kitty Supo. And then he said, what was your name? I'd been ordained a year, 18 months, and hadn't used the name except you know, Chris when I wrote to my mother and father. And he said, what, what, what's your name? And I went, <laughs> and he didn't come. 
And I thought, my goodness, yeah, there's great encouragement to let go of the past and let, let, go, and not, and let go of all the Id old identities and roles and not cling to, not cling to it. But this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so he looked at me, I, he didn't come back. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes in our, the way of the meditations, the way of, of the, the mi mindfulnesses, and uh, having said that, I do hope after 10 days when you leave here, you can remember your home address. <laughs> <laughs> If not, Stan will take you home. <laughs> so sometimes there is the letting, there is the past, and we let go of the past. But sometimes, in a kind of absorption in the present, some of the things which would seem so familiar can seem, and sometimes a little disconcerting in our feeling life can seem uh, a bit remote, a bit distant from us. I think sometimes that does occur, and people quite regularly uh, uh, report this to me. Let me say, okay, let, let, let's, rather than be concerned with the past and all that's gone past in our life, let's be concerned with what it lives. Let's be concerned what the living present is. And particularly here, what's the, what's the feeling life in relationship to the living present? What is the feeling life? With you know, heartfulness, awakening of the heart, waking of the being, if there's a... a a component to it, surely it has to be in the feeling component, must be included in that, a kind of indicator, an intimacy of something. And something seems, I think, to happen, as it were, to us in the process of the meditation, in the process of being mindful. And sometimes thoughts arise because we, we find it difficult to understand. It's as though, we, and we sometimes say, one part of me is looking at another part. One aspect of myself, it, we might call it the observer, the, the witness, the watcher, the meditator, is looking at another aspect of myself. In this case, the feeling aspect. Sometimes, as you report, in the emotional life, in the fe feeling life, quite some intensity of feelings, emotions, can arise quite unexpectedly during the course of the time and the days here. Sometimes great welter of fe feelings and uh, emotions arise, and it sometimes it seems we are lost, if not drowning in the feelings, drowning in the emotions. And when that happens, it also what can be a little bit disconcerting is when it arrives in the meditation room, a person feels like crying, and it's very important to have the freedom to do that, and sometimes people cry, sometimes laugh, sometimes scream, or whatever. When there's some outpouring there, often one of the first thoughts which arises in the outpouring of, of feelings, oh, if there's sound which accompanies them, oh, I'm disturbing other people, and very easily the thought of not wanting to disturb other people, or sometimes not wanting to let others know what one is feeling. One tends to want to put the brake on feeling, or move out the door, go to one's room or outside. And I say, if possible, stay with the process. And to look at it in a, another kind of way, if all the teachings are truly about being present, and the whole consummation of the teachings is of 
always available to us with the present. Then, in a way, if somebody is crying in the hall, the Dharma hall here, then that can be a very substantial contribution to keeping everybody's, everybody else present. <laughs> Mind doesn't easily wonder when there is some event going on, then it saves Henrietta and I from having to give more guided meditations. <laughs> so, s just for the present and for the actuality of being present, sometimes the wave arises. When a wave arises, unsought for, unlooked for, but it arises, then sometimes we want to get back to an anchor point such as the breath, such as the body, such as what it was before it started. And I say, when, uh, never mind about the methodologies and the techniques and the structure, the support itself, us being together in here and in the facility itself, is the support, is the structure, is the frame for us. So it's a non-self frame, a non-self support, and in that support, that allows the process of feeling life, intense feelings, emotions, to pass through. And sometimes we feel lost in them, drowning in them, overwhelmed by them, or whatever. And there's a certain kind of faith that we just stay with it, without resistance, can allow that wave to pass through. And importantly, with the wave, are we drawing a conclusion? Can we go through something in life, in our looking and our interest in our emotions and feelings, see what takes place in that movement, allow the process to go through, and whenever opinion, whatever view is drawn at the end, one sees this is a way of relating to this. Therefore, it's not some absolute statement about oneself. Can one live without an absolute statement about oneself? Gives that little bit more space there. When we observe ourselves, as I say, sometimes it appears one part is looking at another part. In this case, one part, called the mind or the observer, the meditator, is looking at another part called the feelings. And sometimes we do <coughs> feel, as people report, feel that the sensations, the experience of one's, what one is feeling, is going on somewhere lower in the body, chest, diaphragm, stomach area. Sometimes those sensations which are produced, fear, anxiety, the unpleasant ones, fear, anxiety, agitation, worry, some way in which one feels disconsolate about something, that there is a sense not only of the feelings occurring deeper inside of oneself, but the feelings communicate to oneself some sense of constriction. The sensation, as it were, appears to have the message that the sensations which I'm experiencing around a, a situation, known or unknown, fear, anxiety, agitation, worry, going on inside myself, is a statement of constriction. And the person will say, I feel, I feel constricted. So the interpretation is of being constricted 
Because the message goes, that's what the sensations are, that's what the feeling experience is. The feeling experience actually isn't. It's what we assume. And what happens when we identify with the sensation, when we identify with the feeling, so I feel constricted, or I am, I am so constricted, I am so tight, our world, our liberation, our awakening, in a way, has, as it were, shrunk to that experience. The world has got smaller and smaller, because you say, I am feeling constricted, or I am so tight, or I am so caught up. So it's not the sensation, but it's the identification, the attachment, the belief in, which is the issue, not the sensation. Sometimes we get the idea with our feeling life as we experience, I'm still with the unpleasant feelings for a moment. Sometimes we get the idea with our feeling life, spiritual work, awakening, realization, whatever, is in fact the answer to the feelings. What, that, what I mean by that is that those unpleasant feelings and sensations which arise in various parts of the body, wherever, whatever the location, that if there is realization, or if there is awakening, if I've discovered the truth, if I am a free human being, whatever way we phrase it, those sensations will stop once and for all. I'll have a lovely, lovely life, <laughs> because this lovely life, there won't be an unpleasant feeling in my life. I'll have got rid of them all. My stomach will be so comfortable <laughs> when my lover leaves me. My life, <laughs> my days will go, go by with peace and harmony. There won't be any single unpleasant feelings or sensations uh, going, going on inside my dying and, and my death will be just like a honeymoon. <laughs> and all of this goes with the idea, misinterpreted idea, misinterpreted, that awakening means the end of those unpleasant sensations. There's no evidence for this. <laughs> there is no human being that I have ever met there is who can say this. There is no statement of the Buddha which says, I did not experience any unpleasant sensations in the course of my existence <laughs> after the Bodhi tree. Yet somehow we have the idea liberation is the end of these unpleasant sensations. If a, if a Buddha, I would say, was walking down the road and out of the bushes jumped a Rottweiler and, <laughs> and went for him without even biting or barking. Nobody's telling me that a Buddha wouldn't have some sensations <laughs> going on and be a little sweating under the armpit.
So there's the world that we live in, and there are the sensations which can occur in which spark inside in response, pleasant, unpleasant, and somewhere in between. Can the awakening be that those sensations arise, and yet those sensations, what we call the contracted, what we call the contracted ones, the narrow ones, the restricted ones, whatever, make no statement about life. Make no statement in themselves about one's existence. Uh, make no statement about one's capacity to respond and to act and to live and to be. That they are there in the whole diversity of things, but they're not a statement about anything or anyone, and never were. Sometimes, on the unpleasant range of sensations and feeling experiences, we have the impact of that, and it touches us, it affects our responses. And in the impact of that, the mind gains a kind of clue. And it can be very insightful and, and valuable and necessary. And the clue being that this which I'm experiencing, experiencing has its relationship to the past. And of course there has been in the uh, tradition of um, psychotherapy, lots of insights and invaluable resources and understanding, which many of you will know far, far better than I, of the value of looking how unpleasant experience in the present has, as it were, causal relationship in time to the past. And there has been, and there continues to be, an immense amount of investigation into the nature of feelings and to help understand the way that the past and the present interplay with each other. But that interplay is the way that that interplay can work is I have to look at my present as the effect. I need to think of it as the effect. If I am to say the past is an influence. So I've got to bring in a certain form of relationship, a certain acknowledgement of the relationship in a particular way which says what the present is, is an effect. Once I have it viewed that view it in that way, then the past will matter to me. And it may matter, and that may need to be looked at. But it may not. Despite the variation and sometimes the intensity of the feelings and sensations which are taking place. It's simply one way we look at life, cause and effect. Causes and effects. Sometimes, as some of you report in your dream life, in your day-to-day -day life, uh, here and elsewhere. And I hear and have heard, of course, over um, um, many years of, not many years, really, 15 years of uh, uh, serving the Dharma, many, many uh, accounts in all sorts of uh, situations and painful ones, acutely painful ones of things which have become apparent to a person on a retreat from the past in a way that has and is influencing and affecting the present. And sometimes it's though 
life in a moment or in the potency of the capacity of the mind, it's almost like one can relive what was old. Relive it inwardly, what had happened. And those things are capacity of mind. And clearly and, and, of, and often extremely difficult to cope with. But I say, situations like this do and are a wonderful, free and secure and safe place for a human being to allow these things to pass through, to take place, and not intentionally ask uh, oneself, what was I in the past? How was it in the past? Why was it in the past? What was the circumstance of the past? No, actually have to look in that direction, in this kind of environment, and therefore keeping, difficult as it might be, faith with the healing power of the living present. Not from a, an individual, such as a teacher, not even from individuals, something more mysterious than that. Then we look. What, shall we say, is my relationship to the feelings which I experience? What is my relationship to the feelings which I experience? And I think this dynamic, this relationship in this way, is such that when we look to, this looking to, this observation of, actually affects feeling life. When, you, when you're sitting here, when you're walking, when you're going through your day, when I'm going through my day, and my attention, intentionally, or it it's occurring in the nature, as it were, I turn my attention to my feelings. My turning of the attention to my these feelings which I am experiences influences them. One doesn't have a clean uh, attention. The moment that you and I look at something, we influence it by the looking. I think the scientists have seem to have discovered this, and, and some of them seem to have got a Nobel Prize for what seems so obvious <laughs> in their endeavours that they influence what they do. And, however, we are not likely to get any Nobel Prizes for, for such things. And talking about Nobel Prizes, a, a friend of mine in, in uh, Germany, who was a monk, came up with a wonderful slight distraction here. It's an advertisement came up with a, a wonderful idea. Those little beeper clocks that you can buy, which when they g go off, especially for meditators, tend to uh, make a bit of a loud sound. And some people like to sit, as I do too in fact, like to sit with eyes clo closed and forget about the, the clock. And I know sitting up here in Henrietta and I, you know, we have to feel obliged to uh, look at the time from time to time so that um, we don't space out too long and people are sitting here an hour and a half and wondering <laughs> what the hell is going on up front. <laughs> so we use the clock. But anyway, this friend, he, he, he a bit of a handy person and these things, took the back off and then um, did something with the beeper and reduced the sound of the beeper 
So anybody a couple of meters away actually won't be able to hear it, and you can just hear it beep. You need a little bit of, of attention, but nevertheless. And this beeper would just go off. And the wonderful thing for sitting, and I th this thought occurred to me, he's actually selling a, a few in uh, Europe, but the, the thought occurred to me that for such a wonderful spiritual service that he should be nominated for the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and, and I thought, considering some of those who have got it from the USA and elsewhere, I think he's got a very high chance of getting it. I really do. <laughs> so, end of advertisement. So sometimes when we are looking at the observation of our uh, fe feelings, we kind of take the position up of the detached observer who just looks at the feelings and sees what their condition is. I don't think it is possible. I think there is that in the interconnectedness, interdependence of things, the observation makes the influence, adds influence. So in the observation, in the looking at the feelings, sometimes the observation of, the awareness of, the noticing of, is carrying pain. It's not just in the sensation, as it were, itself, but the capacity to observe, the capacity to be aware of, can bring, through memory, through time, some unpleasantness, some worry, some anxiety, and that goes straight to the situation, straight to the feelings. So sometimes one is looking at one's life, looking at situations, looking at things that one might do in one's life, steps that one takes, and one asks oneself, how is it that the moment I start observing something, the moment I start uh, looking into something, inquiring into something about something that I could do, the moment I do that, I'm feeling anxious. The anxiety is coming through with the observation, with the mindfulness itself. With the intention to act, it drags it from the past, that sensation, right into the present. Sometimes it's felt very bodily, of course. Sometimes it isn't felt bodily, but one knows that disconsolate voice, right in the observation, right in the mindfulness. And says, again, where is the liberation from this? If that our mind moves, we carry... If our mind moves to our feeling life, we ob observe it, where, where, is, where is the freedom going to be? What, what's the, the awakening here? And I say, just as I said earlier, even acknowledging the worry, the anxiety, the restlessness, the dissatisfaction, the uncertainty or whatever, even not in the acknowledgement of that and the recognition of that, can there be the authority to respond and act in spite of ourselves. Understand? In spite of ourselves, in spite of the sensations, in spite of the unpleasant tinge in the observations and the inquiry to act in our life, to do something in our life, in spite of the hesitations, in spite of the past, in spite of history, can there be a way of being in the world which in spite of means in spite of oneself. Sometimes we see with this uh, 
many, many areas of this, of course. Sometimes we see this, these sensations that take place, like with the bodily sensations, one of the values of acknowledging the whole body sensation and all the variety of experiences in a body awareness, one of the values is it should, it ought to, ought to be, if I can use such concepts, ought to be showing us that there is a whole range of bodily sensations. Why describe some of them with their emotional factor and content restricted? What happens if that stops? What happens if that stops? What does that mean for us when we speak of liberation? speak of being a, a free human being, an emancipated human being, if the ideology of restriction, of the ideology of restriction of sensations, is finished with. That one makes no more fuss about the sensations in the bottom of one's feet as one takes a walk, as the sensations that are churning in one's stomach area because of events. One doesn't make the difference. One, therefore the restriction has gone. What does that say with regard to liberation? With regard to being a, a free human being? Sometimes through communication We talk about feelings and we connect with them in very important ways and value to do that. But sometimes meditatively, it is very quiet in our sitting, in our walking and in our day. And we just give care to the feeling just very, very quiet with ourselves. It may only be for a minute or a few minutes or two. And we take a very sensitive interest in the feeling. This is assuming that there aren't great waves taking place, which would go against our capacity at that time. And we just address an interest, a very quiet interest in the, in the feeling. And we look at it, we, we, we respond to it, we connect with it, we feel it through, so to speak, in a very quiet, quiet way. And perhaps sometimes when we allow ourselves, give ourselves the opportunity to do that, perhaps our whole notion of feelings might undergo some kind of transformation. That we're not bringing our mi in our mind, as it were, to make a statement but rather saying, this feeling life, in a way, the interest in that, it shows to us that it belongs to everything. It doesn't belong to me. The self doesn't have to be concerned about it in the way that I imagined. And it's not a threat. It's not damaging, it's not 
tightening, it's not restrictive. It's just whatever it is. And my mind, upstairs, so to speak, cannot really say anything absolute about it. And even the most varied feelings are rather extraordinary. Just extraordinary. And we don't know, ever know where they come from. We don't know what they are and we don't know where they go to. No, we can awaken to. But the feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, in between, belongs to the vastness of it all. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live with wonder. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.